If you would now please open to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We'll be uh, expositing verses 67 through verse 80 this morning. If you're new to Manoa Community Church, we've been going through the original playlist, the original set list, if you will, of the original Christmas carols. Put right into the gospel according to Luke, when the Holy Spirit comes upon certain individuals at the advent of Christ, they extol God through song. We have some of the most ancient songs in the Christian tradition. We have Mary's Magnificat that we heard last week. Today we're going to be looking at Zechariah's song. It's historically been called the Benedictus. If you under if that word sounds familiar, benediction, it comes from the word blessing. Where Zechariah's song on verse 68, he begins, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. So the Latin word for blessed there is benedictus. And so that's where that phrase comes from. We're going to unpack the lyrics of this song this morning, but to give it some context, we're going to go back to verse 56, where Mary's song ends and where they name Zechariah's son, who is John the Baptist. He has been mute, by the way, if you're new to Manoa Community Church. He has uh, lost his voice because the angel Gabriel appeared to him and told him that his wife would have a baby. They did, he did not believe him, so he lost his voice, and that's where we pick things up. So follow along in verse 56. I'm just going to read right up into the point of the song, and then we'll take a break to pray and go into our sermon. Verse 56. And Mary remained with her, Mary remained with Elizabeth, about three months and returned to her home. Now, remember that Mary came to Elizabeth when she was six months pregnant. So Mary stayed with her right until the point that Elizabeth gave birth and went home. Verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, remember he's mute, inquiring what he wanted to, excuse me, wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about all through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Verse 67, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, that's the song we'll unpack today. And look at verse 80. And the child, referring to John the Baptist, grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. A carol of grace. Let's pray. Well, Father God, we thank you for the songs that you have inspired by your Holy Spirit and placed into your word for us. We thank you for the beauty of Christmas carols that we sing throughout the ages, Lord, but we, may we never neglect these original songs that you have put into the word of God. And Spirit of God, we pray that you would open our hearts to the grace that is revealed in this carol for us, this song of Christmas leading up to not only Jesus Christ, but the forerunner, John the Baptist himself and his father singing these songs. And so, God, we pray that these lyrics would leap off the pages into our hearts, that we would dance for joy about your grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
My youngest son, Isaac, told me the other day, he said, Dad, Dad, my name, my name means laughter. I said, that's right, son. Because in the, uh, the Advent reading that we go through, it goes through the whole storyline leading up to Jesus. And so we got through the promise given to Abraham. And you remember Abram, his name was changed by God to Abraham. And then Abraham and Sarah did not believe God that they would get pregnant because they were too old, right? Just like Zechariah didn't believe God because he was too old in Elizabeth. So there's some parallels here when God shows up to work. And so Sarah laughs, because <laughs> I'm too old to get pregnant, right? I'm too old to experience this pleasure. And so God says, your child's name will be laughter, right? We're going to forever remember that this child was given a at the moment of this laughter, so you'll never forget that this is no laughing matter, that God answers our prayers. And so forever in the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, where we refer to God, we remember that God is the God of Abraham, the father of many, and the God of Isaac, the God of laughter. When God gives a name to a child, now again, I have four kids, I love to name my children, but I didn't hear audibly a voice from God I didn't have an angel show up and say, you shall name your child Joanna or Owen. But if he did, I'd best name that child Joanna or Owen. When God gives a name, it's very significant. And so as we enter into the text of this song this morning, we're getting a snapshot into the naming decision of the child that Elizabeth has just given birth to. And all the friends and all the family have strong opinions. You ever know that your friends and family have strong opinions on what you should do with your children, right? But Elizabeth is holding her ground. She said, no, 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 no. They're like, you got to name him Zechariah. Zechariah Sr., Zechariah Jr., Zechariah Third, Zechariah Fourth. This is how this goes down, Elizabeth. Name him Zechariah. She says, no, his name is John. And so they're looking to pull rank here. They're doing a run around the mom, right? And they're going to dad, even though he can't speak, and say, all right, Zechariah, set this straight. What shall you name this child? And so Zechariah writes down on the tablet, his name is John. And at that moment, finally, after nine months, he can speak. Finally, after nine months, he can sing. And once his lips are reopened, the first thing that we hear from his lips is this song of praise. Now, whether he sang it in front of this original audience or later, we don't know. But Luke has gathered this material for us so that we can hear the song that came off of his lips after the curse was broken, after he believed God. I love that he says his name, she says his name shall be, but he doesn't say shall be, future tense. He says, no, his name is John. Like his name has been John for the last nine months. His name was John the moment the angel appeared to him nine months ago in the temple and said, you shall name him John. He knows that that little baby in utero has been John this whole time. And John the Baptist, as all of us know, who have been believers for a while, will become the great forerunner to Christ and pave the way in the spirit of Elijah, fulfilling the prophecy of Malachi. And so he sets up this way for Jesus to be born. And I said earlier that the names that have meaning, the name Isaac means laughter, but the name John means God is gracious, which is why I've entitled today's sermon, A Carol of Grace. 
Because though the word grace does not appear in the carol, I think the reason that God is so adamant through the angel, through Zechariah, and through Elizabeth to call him John is because when God gives a name, it has real significance in the life of that person. And so in this instance, the angel wants us to know that his name will mean that God is gracious. So from this gracious carol, we discover three things about the grace of God. First, if you're taking notes, God is gracious to save us for service. God is gracious to save us for service. This becomes out of the largest portion of the carol, verses 68 through 75. Follow along on the screens or in your Bible. So filled with the Holy Spirit, he speaks and says, Blessed Benedictus, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. God is gracious, first we discover, to save us for service. As his lips are open, as he's filled with the Holy Spirit, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation. And later he says, to save us that we might serve him without fear. Saved for service. The first thing I want to unpack here is the language of horn of salvation because it's not typically the way that we speak in our modern way, right? Like, all righty here. Blessed be God, we got a horn here. A what? Like a trumpet? What? A horn of salvation? Are we, are we trumpeting God's praises here? Why is he blessing God for horns? Well, if you read through the Bible and you understand the context here, the language of horn of salvation is one used throughout your Bible. And the language of horns becomes shorthand or this imagery in your Bible for imagery of strength or might. I live in uh, Edgemont Township. It's closer to Ridley Creek State Park. And so we have a ton of deer in my backyard. And sometimes you see the new baby deers coming out, and they're little and cute, and then you see the mama deers going, and every now and then you see the big guy with the antlers. And your Bible, by the way, doesn't differentiate between horns and antlers. They're used interchangeably, all right? That's our own language. But these antlers or these horns appear, and you can tell, even hunters today talk about how many points that buck is, right? And the more they points they have, points on their horns, the more bragging rights that the hunter has because that was one strong beast. That was one mighty animal. We also in Florida lived near some cows. I know it's weird. There was some cows. It was in Parklands right around the corner from us. And we go and there was these huge bulls with these huge horns. And you're like, do not mess with these mighty creatures, right? Like you do not want to go across that gate. Because when you see a creature with big horns, it is very strong. And so in this agrarian society, in this shepherding, a lot, 
the, the language of horns becomes shorthand for strength. So that the New Living Translation, if you like that paraphrase of this, it's a great paraphrase, by the way. It says that he has raised up the horn of salvation. It says, a mighty Savior. Which, if you're from a liturgical tradition where they sing or say the Benedictus to you in church, that is the phrase they use at this point. They say, God has raised up a mighty Savior. And I want to show you really quick because sometimes this Savior is God himself. Psalm 18, verse 8. Look at this, where the psalmist writes, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. New living, the power that saves me. Sometimes it refers to God himself. God is the horn, but other times it has this messianic, prophetic looking forward to God raising up a horn. So you look at, for example, Psalm 148, verse 14. He has raised up a horn for his people. Ezekiel 29, verse 21. On that day, I will cause a horn to spring up for the house of Israel. And so fused into scripture is both this imagery that God himself is the horn of your salvation, but one day God will raise up a man to be the horn of salvation for his people. And in this moment, we discover that the very horn of salvation is none other than both the man and the God himself, the God-man, Jesus Christ, so that prophesying Filled with the Holy Spirit, we learn about the divine nature of the Christ child born to Mary as his song begins that blessed be the Lord God of Israel, but he has visited and redeemed us. He has raised up the horn of salvation for us. You know, at the end of your Bible, it's full of really cool imagery in the book of Revelation, and Jesus is the Lamb of God, right? He's this Lamb who has been slain. You know how John describes him? He's got seven horns. Because seven is the number of perfection and completeness. He is the perfect, mighty Savior. So right in this hymn, right as we get started, Zechariah is not first most excited about John the Baptist, though in a moment we will get there. He does prophesy about him. He does sing about his own son, But most of this carol is about Jesus. Most of this carol is about the horn of his salvation that God has raised up to save Zechariah, to save Elizabeth, to save Israel, and to save the world. Now, I said here that he saves us for service. And before I get to the servant part, I want to show he says he saves us from our enemies. Do you see that? Saves us from those who hate us. Now, historically speaking, the hope of Israel, the consolation of Israel, this messianic picture is that we are under Roman occupation, right? We have been the tail and not the head for long enough. And when Messiah comes, we will be the head and not the tail. And so some of this language has this sort of Jewish nationalistic impulse that finally, And all throughout the ministry of Jesus, even up to the very beginning of the book of Acts, where the disciples are saying, Jesus, are you going to now restore the kingdom to Israel? There's this tension between the immediate hope of the ethnic people of Israel as it ripples out to all of the nations, the blessing of Abraham given to all people. And so he is looking forward to God's deliverance of his plight right then and there. But once again, these songs become songs of the church throughout the ages so that we sing this over and over and over again. And we're not singing about God delivering us from the hand of the political party that we don't agree with. 
or the other nation, this China, we hate China, or North Korea, you know. Because now we have been delivered from our true enemy. Because the Bible says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against powers and principalities, evil forces in this world. By the way, we wrestle against the enemy within. We wrestle within this enemy of the sinful nature of our fallen flesh. There are all of these enemies in this world that the Savior, the mighty horn of salvation comes and delivers us from so that this promise is not unhitched completely in a moment of attack. You can sing the song and pray, God, deliver me out of this. But it's so much broader now and it finds its location throughout all time for all believers from any nation where we praise God and say, he is a God that delivers us from our enemies. He is a God who's delivered us from the greatest enemy of all, Satan himself, which is why we sing every Christmas. God rest you, merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ, our Savior, was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power. We were gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Comfort and joy. Because the power of the horn of Christ is so much stronger than the power of Satan and from all of our enemies. And so the first thing he says is we've been delivered. We've been delivered from death. We've been delivered from the devil. We've been delivered from our sin. We've been delivered from all of our enemies, everything and everybody that hates us. We've been delivered from them. But we've not only been saved from something, we've been saved to something, which is how he ends this section. That we might, verse 74, serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Did you know that God has saved you not only from hell and from the devil and from your sin? Believer, he has saved you to something. He has saved you to himself, to serve him, to serve him fearlessly, to serve him with holiness, to serve him in righteousness, that you have been set apart by grace according to Ephesians chapter two. You've been saved by grace through faith. It's not of your own doing, it's the gift of God. Then no one may boast For verse 10, you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared in advance for you to walk in. There are good works. There are acts of service. There is holiness and righteousness that God holds out for us, that he rescues us from our enemies. He rescues us from evil. He delivers us from the evil one, and he delivers us into a life of holiness to fearlessly serve him on this side of eternity into the eternal age where we will serve him fearlessly, rescued from our enemies forever and ever and ever. God has set you apart. Did you know that? He has set you apart. He has saved you. He has delivered you to serve him. How are you serving him? And I want to say one more thing before we go to the second point here. You know, we're in a pretty divided age right now, right? Like, we got a lot of enemies. (laughs) We could sing this song and like, all right, God's going to smoke my enemies. And I'm the good guy and they're the bad guys. But remember at one time you were an enemy of God. And he saved you from yourself out of the enemy camp into the camp of God's beloved son. And one of the ways you not only serve him fearlessly is you also serve your enemies fearlessly. And that's by loving them. 
That is the kingdom that Jesus inaugurates. That we love our enemies and we pray for them that they would be delivered from the enemy camp into the camp of God's beloved son. So as we sing this song of praise and as you conjure up in your mind the other camp that you want to see obliterated, may I adjust your heart just a little bit this holiday season that you would shine the light of Christ that just as God delivered you, and made you an enemy into a beloved son and daughter. That you would use the service of God. He saved you to serve him and to save the world in his name, by his grace. Amen. Secondly, God is gracious not only to save us for service, but to pre- prepare us whoa, prepare us for forgiveness. Prepare us for forgiveness. The hymn now takes a turn. From Jesus to John the Baptist for two verses, verse 76 and 77. And you, child, now he's referring to his own child, the child that they've just chosen the name, the the child that they've just circumcised, John the Baptist. You, child, John, will be called the prophet of the Most High. And you will prepare, excuse me, and you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. God is gracious not only to save us for service, but to prepare us for forgiveness. Now this is once again embodied literally in John the Baptist, right? He's now turning from the horn of salvation, Jesus, saying he might even be holding his baby. And you, son, you will be a prophet of the most high God. You will go before the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? The Lord himself to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. We see John the Baptist as he grows up out in the wilderness. He's in the, uh, you know, in the rugged clothing with the leather belt, eating the locusts with the honey, right? And he's not to cut his hair. He's got a Nazarite vow. All of these things. He is a fiery, bold prophet. He's one of the most uh, famous prophets ever. There are still today a few tens of thousands of followers of John the Baptist still alive that literally just, they follow John the Baptist. They don't follow Jesus. It's interesting. That's how well known he was. It's not a big movement anymore, but at that time, everyone thought that John was the star, possibly even the Messiah. He kept denying, saying, no, 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 that's not the one. I'm the one to prepare the way. But John the Baptist emerges, the angel uh, appears to his father, says that he will be a prophet, that he's going to make the, sh- the crooked path straight. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. When he appears in the wilderness, crowds are gathering to him in the wilderness. If you feel called to open-air preaching, let me appeal to you. If people don't gather to hear you, you're probably not the right, in the right fit, all right? People are coming to hear him. They want to hear him. If they're running from you, We'll find another method of evangelism for you, right? They, they're running to him. They want to hear him. And they hear this fiery message of repentance to turn, to get your life right with God. And the crowds, this is what they say. What shall we do? What should we do, John? You're telling us to get right with God. What should we do? He talks to tax collectors. He talks to soldiers, Roman soldiers. He talks to all sorts of people. He says, You're being selfish. Share with people. Don't defraud people. Don't tax collectors. Don't take more than you've been allowed to take. 
Soldiers, don't threaten people. Only use the authority you've been given to do good, not evil. All of these instructions to get them ready and to repent. And he was baptizing with water as a sign of repentance. But as we all know, he ultimately baptizes Jesus. The Holy Spirit descends on Jesus. Now John the Baptist points to him and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I am not the Lamb of God. Jesus is. Repentance prepares you for salvation. Repentance prepares you for faith. Repentance prepares you to turn to the Lord. We don't repent into repentance. We repent into Jesus, right? So he's turning the world to Christ and preparing all the crowds. All of a sudden, he's got this huge following. And this is what he says. All right now, you all follow him. (laughs) Not quite that smooth, but it. It's basically follow him now. Some of Jesus' first 12 apostles, Andrew, he was a follower of John the Baptist first. Did you know that? Reread the gospel according to John. When he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Andrew said, he's the Lamb of God? See you, John. (laughs) And he starts the new Israel, right? The new 12 tribes are forming under Jesus. And so what we see in John the Baptist is one who historically prepared the world for salvation. But let's broaden this now because this is how God is faithful. He prepares us to come to Jesus. He exposes those things where before you come to Jesus, you need one of these moments of what should I do? You don't come to Jesus for forgiveness of your sins until there's a moment where you're like, I'm a sinner. You don't come to Jesus to clean up your life until you come to the end of yourself and say, my life needs some cleaning, right? You don't see the need of salvation unless you see that you're in dire peril of death and destruction. If you don't fear, remember when people came to John the Baptist and he said, who warned you of the wrath to come, right? Like all of a sudden they're tuned on. There's a day of judgment and I got to get ready. And it prepares us for Jesus. Now, repentance, I want to be clear, it doesn't save you. You can get stuck in repentance. It's like, I'm not a good enough person, not a good enough. And all of a sudden, that's not grace anymore. That's just just a navel gazing, have I done a good enough job, which now looks like every other religion in the world. Just be a better person and you'll be A-OK. No, no, no. Repentance actually turns you not only from your sins, but from yourself to Jesus, from your good deeds and your bad deeds. A Christian is someone who not only abandons their evil deeds, but abandons all of their good deeds as the basis of their forgiveness and acceptance before God, and he flees both of those to the cross of Jesus Christ. He flees from both of those to the Savior of the world, and he says, here is my ultimate righteousness. Jesus was crucified for me, the Lamb of God, the seven-horned, Lamb of God, the mighty Savior of the world, and I come under him. I come to him just like John the Baptist who pointed that first century church to Jesus. He still speaks, his prophetic word still speaks over us and says, don't follow preachers, don't follow Stephen, don't follow Ron, don't follow fill in the blank. We are all just pointers to the real Savior of the world. The Savior of the world is Jesus and he prepares us to be forgiven. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Did you know that this is a dark world? That there is sin and error in this world? If not, let John the Baptist get your attention. Let the law of God knock you down a few steps in your own self-assessment. All right? 
Because the way the law of God works, think about the Ten Commandments, do this later. We look at it and it's a mirror. And the mirror shows us the sin. We don't use the mirror to clean our lives up. We use the mirror to figure out where we need wash. And then we go to Jesus because he cleanses us. That is the role of John the Baptist. And his father, his father before the child is even two weeks old, is already singing the role that he will play in the redemptive story and in our lives. So God is gracious. He's gracious not only to save us for service, to prepare us for forgiveness, but thirdly and finally, to enlighten us for peace. To enlighten us for peace. The final two verses of this hymn. Verse 78 and 79 talks about the forgiveness of our sins. Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give lights to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. God is gracious to enlighten us for peace. Zechariah's hymn, inspired by the Holy Spirit, verse 67. Again, this prophecy now pivots right back to Jesus. So it's Jesus, John, Jesus. That's the flow of the stanzas, if you will. And we go right back to the light of the world here that we sang about in our opening worship set this morning. He talks about how Jesus is to give light to those who sit in darkness because of the tender mercy of our God. That sunrise, this incarnation, this advent of Jesus shall visit us from on high. And the purpose of the light of the world, Jesus Christ, coming into this world is to give dark, to dispel the darkness. Do you see that? To give light to those who sit in the darkness and in the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. All of the imagery here, once again, is this darkness, right? That we are sitting in darkness. Long lay the world in darkness, sin and error pining. So all of a sudden, John the Baptist kind of clues us on to the fact that, wait, maybe the evil's not all out there, right? Maybe the evil's not just Rome. Maybe the evil's also the tax collectors in Israel. Maybe the evil's in the crowds. Maybe the evil's in the church. And so John the Baptist has us looking inward. And all of a sudden, we see the darkness, but we're not left in the dark. We're not left shackled to die in the valley of the shadow of death. That imagery is so powerful, isn't it? Our favorite psalm, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. He's with us in the valley of the shadow of death. Well, here he uses this imagery in his song once again and says that there are people who are literally sitting in the shadows. Do you see it? They're sitting in the darkness in the shadow of death. We are sitting in the dark. The scariest thing often about this when I think about the world is that usually those who think that they're most aware of the world and how the world works are blind to their blindness and blind to the darkness. You know, there's some powerful books. My kids are reading The City of Ember. You guys ever read that one where it's this dystopian future where they, they build a world underground and don't know that there's daylight because they're trying to avoid some holocaust or some sort of... Uh, you know, atomic bomb or something. They don't really know how they ended up down there, but these kids find their way out and discover that there's actually a, a whole world of light above the ground, and they didn't even know about it because generations were living in the darkness. Or maybe you read the book as a child. I read this book, uh, Mark Twain's, about the adventures of Tom, Tom Sawyer, remember? And he and Tom and Becky 
get trapped in McDougal's cave. And they bring some candles with them, some string, but they're playing hide and seek. And they go deeper and deeper and deeper into the cave. And they have some cake left over from a party, but they realize after a while that their candle is getting smaller and smaller. And they realize that they're lost. And so all of a sudden they extinguish the light to try to preserve whatever little light is left. And they're eating the cake and finding water and realizing after a day, two days, three days, they go to sleep, wake up. They've lost all measure of what day, what time it is. They realize they are likely going to die. And they walk in the darkness, stumbling around, and they're not sure if they're going to fall into a pit. They're not sure if they're getting further to the entrance or further into the cave. Literally, they are completely trapped and sitting in darkness in the shadow of death. And you as the reader, you're wrapped into that world in the terror of darkness that we're not really familiar with. It starts to cling to us where we realize how valuable light is to survival. This is the picture of the darkness that is painted for us of the world. That in John chapter 1, when it talks about the Christmas story and the incarnation, referring to John the Baptist, it says, he was not the light. He was one preparing and pointing the way to the light. The light of the world, the light of the world is Jesus. And in him was life and light and the light of man. And he says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not and cannot overcome it. And in that dark cave, amen? In that dark cave, Jesus bursts forth and he not only shines the path for your feet, but literally he raises you up, grabs you by the hand and pulls you out into safety. He guides your feet into the way of peace so that you will never perish. That is the rescue plan of Christmas, that the light of world was born into that dark, our dark world, into that dingy, stinky manger where the shepherds in the darkness, the angels in the glory and the light of heaven spills over them. And all of a sudden, we're aware that there is light far more superior than our Christmas lights, the light, the Christmas light that has come to rescue us and to guide our way, our feet from darkness into the path and the way of peace. This Christmas, where is your hope? This Christmas, who is your mighty Savior? I said at the outset that names are significant. John's name was given by the angel because John's name means God is gracious. You probably know this, but if you're new to the Christmas story, did you know Jesus' name was also given by that very same angel? Joseph, another father, the human father, not the, the adoptive father of Jesus, was about to divorce Mary. This whole thing sounded crazy to him. She was about to bring great shame on herself, and he did not want that to happen to him. But in a dream, an angel appears to Joseph and says, Joseph, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. And he confirms the story that she shared with him. For that which was conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And Joseph is the one who's given the divine name of Jesus. Did you know that? In the dream, the angel says, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus, Joshua, means the Lord saves. In the Christmas story, 
we discover that God is gracious. The Lord saves us. And we have a mighty Savior. God has raised up the horn of his salvation. Amen. Let's stand, church. Let's pray. We'll sing a song of praise before we take communion together. If you're here this morning and you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, today is the day of salvation. If like John the Baptist, you now know that you need to be saved, that you say, what should I do? And you now know I need to turn to Jesus. I need to place my faith in Jesus. It's not hard. It's simply an act of faith. It's an act where you reach out to him and say, I believe. Yet in another sense, it's the hardest thing you can ever do because it takes a miracle to clean, take your hand off of the sin that you like, love and off of yourself, which you trust far too much, and place it on Christ. My challenge for you today and every day, put your hand on the mighty horn. Put your hand on Jesus. His grip is stronger than yours. He will forgive your sin and he will deliver you. He will shine his light into your life and he will guide your feet into the path of peace. If you'd like to do that, church, let's bow our heads for a moment in prayer. If you'd like to receive Christ this Christmas season, or just be sure to rededicate or recommit your life to Christ. Just raise your hand right now. I'd like to pray for you before we move on. Who here would like to trust in Christ? Just raise your hand. You'd like to experience the forgiveness of your sins. I see you. Who else? I see you. I see you. Anybody else? I see you. Thank you. I believe there's one more. Is there anybody else that's delaying? Pray something quietly in your heart like this. Say, Jesus, I believe that you are the mighty Savior. I believe you're the Savior of the world, and I believe today, Jesus, you're my Savior. God, forgive me for my sins. God, I confess that I'm trapped in darkness apart from you, the valley of the shadow of death, but I thank you, Jesus, that now you are with me. Jesus, I pray that you would shine your light to me right now. Forgive me of all my many sins, present and future, and come into my life by your Spirit. Thank you that you are not only the mighty Savior, but today I make you my mighty Savior. Forgive me and give me the assurance of eternal life through your Holy Spirit, I pray in Christ's name. For the rest of the church, God, we pray, Lord, that we would serve you without fear. God, that we would be known as a people that serve you in holiness and righteousness all the days of our lives. Lord Jesus, you are the light. Help us to walk in your light. Guide our feet day by day in your ways. Help us to love our enemies, that they would be delivered and experience the same great salvation as us. Lord, we thank you for saving many even this morning and for saving us. All of heaven rejoices, and we rejoice together this morning that you are a mighty Savior, that you are our mighty Savior. To your glory we pray this. Amen.